Hello everyone, my name is Dr. Fergal Armstrong and welcome to Lifestyle Matters. And as usual, we have the good Dr. Savina with us. Hello, Savina, how are you? Good, thank you, Fergal. And yourself? I'm very well. So how are we going to start off today's discussion? Well, I think probably the first thing we should probably talk is about how do we actually start exercising? Do we need to screen for um, anything before someone starts exercising? What would you tell your patients when they come in, Virgo? Yeah, so that's a that's a common uh, and understandable worry that, you know, are you fit enough to actually exercise? Are you fit enough to get fit? Um, now, there used to be guidance uh, originally from the States that suggested that practically everybody had to go for a full exercise screen before you could actually be let loose on the gym. Things have become a little bit more pragmatic. And I think the, the first question to ask yourself is, is it actually safe for my patient to, to not exercise? Is my patient safe with a sedentary lifestyle? And when you think about the risks of being sedentary, you know, you think about the, the risks, the, the, the burden of mortality associated with heart disease and cancer even, we realize that actually exercise is beneficial. So therefore, the bar, the threshold for denying someone the right to exercise, as it were, has to be set very, very high. That's the first point to make. On, I'm, I'm a pragmatist. The second point to make is if someone can walk into your office and not be particularly short of breath or symptomatic, they are fit for light, gentle exercise. The next thing I think about is, do they have a past medical history of significant cardiac, renal, or metabolic disease, or do they have significant signs or symptoms that would be worrisome? That's point number one. The second point is, what's their current level of activity? And the third thing is, what's their planned level of activity. Because we know that, that really the whole point about exercise screening or, or, or screening to, to, to allow someone uh, to be declared as fit to, to achieve fitness, as it were, we know that the risk, the, the point about this is to actually reduce cardiovascular mortality. And we know that people die if they've got symptomatic disease and or if they suddenly engage in highly intensive exercise. So we need to identify the people who are high risk either by disease or symptoms who are, and we need to then control what kind of exercise they're doing and making sure that they start low and go slow. It's, you can always start slow and go slow. And then if someone becomes symptomatic then you can start reviewing what, what kind of, what kind of investigations you might do. Yeah. So I suppose someone who's just like had a, well, uh, a bypass per se, you know, with mm. clips across the chest and they've just had a major heart surgery, they wouldn't be doing a strength exercise or lifting weights straight away. Um, and it's just sort of starting again, once, as you said, go slow and build up yeah. on it. Is that, that's well, basically... exactly. But the thing is, you know, um, long gone are the days when people used to have major surgery and then lie in bed for weeks at a time. You know, the key thing is to get people out of bed and being active. And as we've already discussed, activity is a form of exercise. You know, knee replacements, people, people have their knee replacements in the morning and then walk down to the cafe in the afternoon for a cup of coffee. You know, that, that's, that's how modern medicine has, has, has transformed the view of rest versus exercise. Exercise is good for you. Activity is good for you. We should be encouraging it as much as possible. But, you know, in your situation of someone who's had their chest ripped open and had open heart surgery, well, 
you know, they're not, you know, they, they, they need to be engaged in rehab. So we're not talking necessarily about people who are still in the post-acute care or rehab situation. We're talking about patients who are general primary care patients that walk in off the streets. That's, I think, where my pragmatic approach comes in. If they're fit enough to walk in off the streets and they're not short of breath, they don't have any chest pain, they don't have any dizziness, then they're fit enough to do light, gentle exercise, which includes walking. Start low and go slow. Great tip, Virgo, great tip. <laughs> so I suppose if you wanted to talk about exercise itself, like there are a few stages of exercise, aren't there? Um, in yeah. terms of um, durations of, of people going yeah. through, um, starting off, you know, with the initial stage. Um, there's three stages, isn't there? Um, the initial stage, the improvement stage, and the maintenance where they've achieved the level of fitness and they want to maintain it at that point. Um, did yeah. you want to take us through that, Virgo? Well, yeah, it goes back to start low and go slow. So as you say, there are three phases. The initial, let's get used to, the, to, to being an exercising person, let's get the habit formed. Then there's the improvement stage, and then there's the maintenance stage. So, you know, you can't run a marathon by getting up tomorrow morning and, and running a marathon. You've got to start low and go slow. So I, I advise patients to undergo an initial, initial kind of acclimatization of exercise phase of about one to, one to six weeks. And then the second stage, I suggest, you know, you, you go at your own pace, but it can be up to eight to 12 weeks. And then when you, when you get to the point where you're ready to maintain, that's the level that you take for the rest of your life. And that's, that's what you should be achieving. You should be aiming to achieve that goal of being able, able to exercise for the rest of your life. So if we're looking at intensity in more detail, we can use various measures. So one measure that we can use now is heart rate reserve. So just to remind everyone, heart rate reserve is the maximal theoretical heart rate, which is 220 minus your age, minus your resting heart rate. So if someone who's 20 years old, if they have, they theoretically have a maximum heart rate of 220 minus their age, which is 200. And then if they have a resting pulse of 60, then their heart rate reserve is 140. So 40% of that, I don't know what the maths are, but that's what you would start at if you, if you were sedentary. So you would start at 40% of your heart rate reserve above your resting heart rate, and you would do it for 15 minutes. And you do that every day, five or five days a week for the first six weeks. And then you go into the increment phase. And I would recommend that every sixth training session, you increase your uh, exercise intensity by about 5% of your heart rate reserve until you get to the desired heart rate reserve. And you're, always, you're also trying to also maintain the duration of training. So you're trying to maintain a duration of training of up to 30 minutes. Yeah. So you start off with increasing the duration first till you get to where you need to, so the 20 to 30 minutes, yeah. and then yeah. I guess you can then start increasing yeah. the intensity of your exercises. So duration is then. the run, and then the rise is the heart rate reserve. And you're not looking to do any more than 5% increments on your heart rate reserve in terms of the intensity. And then when you get to about you know, anything between 40 to 85% of your heart rate reserve, that's when you are at your, 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 your desired activity level. And that's when you go into the maintenance phase. And that's what you do for the rest of your life. And, you know, you, you really should be aiming to achieve what we call the 50th percentile for your age. So 
What do approximately half of, of the rest of the people in your age group do for their exercise and what is their level of fitness? That's what you should be aiming for for the rest of your life. And that's a, that's a gradual improvement from baseline to 50th percentile. Now, there are various other ways of measuring intensity of exercise. So we've talked about heart rate reserve. We can also talk about just purely in terms of, of percentage of maximal heart rate. So we know that, you know, Low intensity exercise involves less than 64% uh, of your maximal heart rate. We know that moderate intensity exercise involves a heart rate of uh, a percentage heart rate of between 64 and 76% of maximal heart rate. And therefore, high intensity exercise involves more than 76% uh, of your maximal heart rate. And even another way of discussing intensity of exercise could be a metabolic equivalent of task. So, you know, one met is roughly equivalent to the oxygen consumption of three and a half mils of oxygen per gram of tissue per minute. And we know tissue. that light... <laughs> so basically, it's a marker of how much oxygen you're consuming. And remember, aerobic fitness is dependent on one's ability to consume oxygen. So, you know, a, a met, a, a moderate amount of exercise would be walking... Uh, moderately, which is the equivalent of three mets per hour. So, so what I'm trying to make the point of is that there are various ways of measuring the intensity of exercise. Heart rate reserve is just one way, percentage of maximal heart rate is another, and then metabolic equivalent of tasks is another. But if you forget everything else, just start low and go slow. But eventually, some people can choose to engage in high-intensity exercise when they're using you know, when, the, when their intensity is approaching 85% of their heart rate reserve. And that's your domain of expertise, isn't it, Savina? Tell us about yes. your interpretation of high-intensity exercise. Okay. Um, now, before I go into that, I just wanted to make a point that, you know, what you've just described is actually not very hard to follow. And what is so, you know, I suppose, a little bit sad is when you actually look at the number of people or the statistics of people who actually engage in exercise as per guidelines, it's less than half of the population that actually engages with the current recommended yeah. guidelines. Sorry. Oh, just, just for the sake of the viewers, what are those recommended guidelines? What's... what's... What should we be doing? Well, that's basically what we spoke about the last time, if you recollect. You know, we were talking about the exercise, you know, 30 minutes, five times a week, um, 150 minutes a week in total. Strength-based exercises, which is basically two, set, two to three sessions um, a week. And the other aspect of it is the balance and stretching, which is about 10 minutes, two sessions a week. And those are the current recommendations for someone who's um, above the age of 18, 18 to 65. And bearing in mind that, that that time of exercise relates to aerobic exercise of at least moderate intensity, which is being able to walk and talk but not sing, working at a, at a maximal heart rate, a percentage maximal heart rate of anything between 64 and 76 percent, and uh, walking, or if you want to use METs, then that's at least three METs. So, you know, it's not... It, it is not out with the achievable goals for a lot of people. You know, we should all be aiming to walk briskly. Yeah. 
So now moving on to HIT, um, basically it stands for High Intensity Interval um, Training. And it's basically what it is. It's high intensity, um, which you've described, which is where you're achieving a maximum, your maximum heart rate of above 77%. Um, intervals, you're doing in short bursts, usually about 30 seconds or so. Um, and you're having equal periods of recovery in between that. And this exercise can usually last for about 20 to 30 minutes. Now, this was actually a training that was discovered back in the 1930s, um, and it was by a Swedish coach. He was basically developing a training program to train elite athletes. Um, it was called the fight leg training. Now, since then, has been a lot of research going into it, and um, essentially, one of the most commonly talked about is called Tabata training. Tabata training is basically um, something that a Japanese guy developed um, where you're actually providing super maximal effort, where you're actually going more than 90% of your VO2 max. But, and this exercise you can really shorten in form. I think it's a great exercise for people who are very time poor. Um, but the thing is that you're really going really hard and fast. So VO2 max, um, well, what is VO2 max? And that's basically a predictor of your cardiorespiratory fitness. It's basically looking at the amount, the maximum amount of oxygen that your body can utilize to generate the maximum amount of energy. And that's basically what it is. So the higher intensity workout you do, the higher your VO2 max will be. And what happens then is after the exercise, you your body is in depth in debt and it's requiring, it's needing to actually replenish the oxygen. And that is what they call the epoch, all these terms. Um, and epoch so what is does epoch mean? <laughs> it is basically very simplistically put, it's the afterburn effect. Have you yeah. heard that people say, you know, you do a high intensity workout for 20, 30 minutes and you could be burning off your fat for two to three hours. And that's basically what it is. Right, right. And so I've heard of oxygen debt. So when you're when you're when you're exercising to a high intensity, you're still and you stop, you're still short of breath for maybe a couple of minutes, three, four, five minutes afterwards. So yes. that oxygen debt is different from the elevation of basal metabolic rate that you're alluding to. Is that right? Yeah, that's correct. That's very right. true. So just to clarify, right? So you're you're looking to get a high VO2 a percentage of maximum VO2 VO2 max ninety percent. So you're looking for high intensity exercise at ninety percent of predicted maximum heart rate, right? So you really are trying to exhaust yourself, right? How long is each burst? Well, each burst would usually last for less than what twenty to thirty seconds. It shouldn't right. last for longer than that. Right. So, so 20 to 30 seconds of maximal effort, then followed by how much rest? About 10 seconds of rest, and then you repeat again. You rinse and repeat. 10 seconds of rest. So you're actually yeah. resting for less time than you're exercising. Yeah. Right. So 30 seconds on, 10 seconds off, 30 seconds on, 10 seconds off. And how many cycles well, of rest? 20 to 30 seconds. So that's what you'd be doing. And it just depends. It comes down to, you know, your training level, essentially. So 20 to 30 seconds of exercising at your highest, your VO2 max of 90%, resting for 10 seconds, and then you're repeating and you're doing this going rinse and repeat for four minutes, essentially. Right, for four minutes. So, yeah. well, let's assume for the sake of my simple mathematics. So mm -hmm. if you're doing, if you're exercising for 30 seconds and resting for 30 seconds, well, that's four cycles, yeah. <laughs> We're doing okay. that. So theoretically, right? 
Yeah. Theoretically, you could you could exercise once for four minutes a day, yeah? Yeah. And you could then enjoy the benefits of having a higher metabolic rate for the next two to three hours. Is that what you're saying? That is what I'm saying, yes. So if you want to exercise for just four minutes a day, this is how you do it. Is that that's that's what I'm hearing, yeah? That is what you're hearing. That's correct. Lots of, um, if you go to the gyms and things these days, they do high intensity exercises and things. They actually just put in a little bit of Tabata training. So that high intensity, that super maximal effort um, in. Yeah. So, you know, for example, they might say, you know, in 20 seconds, do as many burpees as you can, for example. Um, and that's basically the in incorporate Tabata training into HIIT training. So that's variations of HIIT training. There are different types of HIIT training, but bottom line, you can actually do whatever exercise. So it could be rowing, it could be cycling, it could be sprinting um, and just sort of adapting this model. So it doesn't, doesn't have to be, you know, going to the gym per se. So, but you know, when you, when you go for an exercise class and it's called high intensity, that's a, that's a half hour class. There's no way that you can sustain maximal effort for, you know, for more than four cycles, you know, throughout the period of a half an hour. So it can't actually be maximal heart rate training or can it? No, no. So that's the thing. High, yeah. when you go for a high intensity class, it's basically, yeah. you know, getting to that above 77% to that maximum yeah. heart rate. And then yeah. in that, they'll have a little short burst of doing Tabata yeah. training. So yeah. it's not the entire class yeah. yet. Yeah. But, Otherwise, and that's, I, you, <laughs> I would have to resist the urge to drop dead if I had to do that. <laughs> <laughs> so, oh so why? Okay, so that's what it is, right? Basically, you can do anything. You could, you could, anything that makes you short of breath. And, and so, the point to make is that old, vulnerable individuals with 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 ischemic heart disease, they are not automatically excluded from this because with the right screening and with the right approach, with the right go slow, start low, and go slow, people can actually get there because even a hundred year old man can improve his heart rate can improve his VO2 max, can improve his fitness, and can by even just by walking up a hill, you know? Definitely. You don't need expensive gym wear. You don't need expensive memberships to do this. You can engage at whatever level you're at. It's all about working out where you are and what your maximum heart rate is and then doing that, doing that um, uh, energy burst activity. But if you've got risk factors, then you do need screening uh, for this particular kind of exercise. Yeah. And I just wanted to make a point there, like you talked about, you know, it doesn't mean just because you've got heart, you know, any medical problems or if you're older, it doesn't mean you can't actually engage in these sort of exercises, um, um, obviously with caveats there, because what they actually found there was, you know, these are all little studies that are around about around surrounding HIIT training. And I found it really fascinating because there was one little small study that showed that maybe it could even have... Um, um, sort of slow down aging over time um, because it actually produces a lot of proteins in the mitochondria which is basically our energy cell there was another, another study that showed that your remember we sp spoke about brain derived neurotrophic factor which yeah, is um, yeah. um, a protein that protects your nerve cells in your brain um, yeah. that actually is also released a little bit more when you engage in these exercises and they found that yeah. actually quite evident in people who are above 65 years old um, yeah. and i mean these are you know look, there are small studies, but it's interesting to see how you, you, you can reap a lot of benefits potentially out of this. Yeah. So the evidence base is emerging and it's looking like high intensity interval training, Tabata, these bursts of activity are useful in getting us fitter, improving our health, 
improving our mental health, improving our brain function, improving cognition. What about visceral fat loss? People want to lose weight. Do you have to slog it out for three hours? You know, doing no, you don't. Or... This is the right training for them. <laughs> oh, yeah, tell me more. Definitely. <laughs> well, no, more. it. <laughs> well, they've actually found that it actually increases, and I think it comes down to that afterburn effect that I was also talking about. It actually increases um, your your fat oxidation um, after exercise, and energy expenditure is actually increased. Well, while you're exercising, obviously, and also after exercise. Um, and that actually is quite. And I think that's a really important message to bear in mind, right? So if I if I go jogging for an hour, right, I'm, I don't know how many calories I would burn in an hour of jogging. I don't know, maybe two, three hundred calories, right? I then go and eat a cream bun. That's it. All that benefits wiped out, right? But if I do four minutes of, of Tabata, you know, really, you know, really absolutely exhausting training, I can sit back and my basal metabolic rate is higher and is burning energy for two, three, four, five hours after the exercise. Yeah. So I, you know, yeah, even if I eat a cream bun afterwards, I'm still potentially raising my basal metabolic rate and burning that off. Yeah. Definitely. Now you, you say that the, the afterburn increases your basal metabolic rate for, um, you know, two, three, four hours. I've actually read in others from other sources that actually you can you can for some lucky people, they can actually elevate their basal metabolic rate for over 48 hours. I did read that there yes. is actually research, but yeah. I, I wasn't. Yeah. So it was I think there were a few small studies yeah. that sort of talked about that. So yeah. it doesn't happen for everyone. But if you're lucky enough to respond in that way to hit, you can ex you can do hit three or four times a week and burn higher levels of calories when you're fast asleep in bed. Just you wouldn't want to do it every it. day, though. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. Well, you know, I mean, if, you, if, you're, if you're a responder to this kind of training, then you only need to do it three or four times a week to elevate your basal metabolic rate. But if you're not, then you need to do it every day. Yeah. But even if you don't respond well, the fact of the matter is, you know, all the other benefits, you know, you do get the immediate afterburn for two or three hours. You do get the brain-derived neurotrophic factor. You do get the cognitive boost, the fitness boost. You know, it's, it's part, it should be included in, in our exercise routines. Yeah, I think it's important to also make a note that, you know, you need to have that time off from HIIT training because otherwise there's actually a quite a high risk of injuries if you try yeah. to engage in it too often. Um, so mm -hmm. I wouldn't be wanting to do it more than three to four times a week. Um, right. The other thing, I suppose, is also it is hard work um, and, you know, you need to be quite motivated to do this. And I find that, you know, engaging with friends or social support or doing Zoom classes, you know, now that we're you know, not able to go out and exercise as how we used to are all actually ways you can help to just increase your motivation levels to actually continue engaging in exercise. But, you know, it's such a time efficient exercise mode. And I think we should all try at some level to start um, engaging in sort of these sort of exercises. And on that sweet note, Savina, we're going to have to wrap it up. Thank you for yep. your time today. And we'll meet again soon. Thank you. Thank you, Fergal. See you next time. I'm Dr. Fergal Armstrong. That's it for today's episode. We'll see you next time.